your Bibles to John's Gospel, John chapter 8, for a sermon entitled, Getting Past Shame, John chapter 8. A man talking to John Wesley once made the arrogant comment, I never forgive. Mr. Wesley wisely replied, then sir, I hope you never sin. In our passage today, Jesus is around the temple area teaching. And when Jesus taught, large crowds gathered. He sounded different than all the other rabbis. To be sure, there were other rabbis or there are students there. But this particular rabbi, by the name of Jesus, the one from Nazareth, the prophet from Galilee, he made the law and the prophets come alive. Besides, there was a rumor out there that this one, this rabbi, could perform miracles. It had been reported that he had healed the sick and the lame had leaped and the blind had seen. Some had said, yes, some had said he could even walk on water. So they gathered, some truly committed and hungering for real knowledge, others curious, hoping to see a miracle. Maybe he'll turn some water into wine. Maybe he'll sake some that are blind and cause them to see. Verse 1, and Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. We're reminded where he is there east of Jerusalem. Some 230 feet above the temple area, this Mount of Olives called because of the olive tree groves there. You know it best for the little garden at the foot of that hillside called the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prays in his passion, Father, not my will, but thy will be done. Jesus often was in the temple area by the day and he would retreat to the mount and the olive groves for rest in the evening. You remember it also from the book of Acts where he ascends to heaven to the Father from this very mount, the mount of which He'll return. Verse 2, he's at it again. He went to the Mount of Olives, but now he's come back to the temple. He sat down and began to teach. In those days, teachers didn't stand. Rather, teachers would sit. A better translation was Jesus kept teaching and the people kept on coming. I want us to notice a few things from this story today. First of all, when you focus on the sins of others, you will miss your own missteps. When you focus on the sins of others, you will miss your own missteps. Look at verse 3. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery and having set her in the center of the court. Can you imagine the horror of being the woman in John chapter 8? It must have been one of those moments, one of those times when you hope you're experiencing a really bad dream and you'll wake up in your own home and in your own bed. It must be one of those times when you wish you could just disappear, but you cannot find an exit. There's no way to escape. What she was experiencing was real. It was no ordinary nightmare. This was a living nightmare. As people gather around the feet of Jesus, as he sits and he teaches. You know what he was preaching? Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's what he always preached. Here come the scribes and the Pharisees dragging this woman caught in the act of adultery, putting her in the very midst right at the feet of Jesus so all can see. That's what they say in verse 4. 
Oh, make no mistake, Rabbi, she was caught in the very act. Now, look at verse 5. Now, the law of Moses tells us that we have to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? Now, notice, curiously, the man is also not brought, takes two, doesn't it? It's not brought before the rabbi for a verdict. In the Jewish law, the man would be equally guilty with the woman, and there should have been two sinners standing before Jesus rather than just one. This is a clear sign that this was no ordinary happenstance, but rather the man had been part of the plan, and it was a trap. They wanted a trap to betray her as a tramp. It was a trap for her, but more importantly, it was a trap for Jesus. The man's in on it all along, and he's allowed to escape the grasp of the authorities. Sinner, sinner, she carried from her very bedside, sinner she is. The man had been an accomplice, but he's nowhere to be found. Now, they could have given her a private hearing, but no, they parade her out in the public eye for all to behold. They needed to see, Jesus needed to see, they needed to see Jesus see and get measure his response so all the crowd could see the rabbi had failed the test. Why, the law was, well, the law was obvious, Leviticus 20. Go look it up, 10, Deuteronomy 22, 22. Moses says that her penalty ought to be that she would be put to death. She would be stoned. So they pose a question in verse 5. Moses says to stone her, Rabbi. Now what do you say? You see the trap. If this would be, could be Messiah, says give her some grace, and they know he will. If he says give her some grace, then how could the second deliverer, the Messiah, go against the first deliverer from slavery in Egypt, Moses, so he would be at odds. The would-be, could-be Messiah would be at odds with Moses, the first deliverer, and he would be done in. It would be the end of his popularity. He could not speak against Moses. It was a trap. Jesus had been teaching. The woman had been cheating. And the scribes and the Pharisees had set out to stop them both. But if Jesus had, had not been lenient, if he had declared, well, Moses already spoken, it's not for me to decide, let's take her out and let's stone her, then he'd be breaking the Roman law. So they have Jesus perfectly trapped, checkmate, playing chess. You're trapped between the law of Moses and the law of the emperor, the law of Rome. Rome did not give Jewish authorities the right to Capital punishment, that's why they had to go to the emperor to have Jesus crucified. They had not right, and certainly not that right in the case of adultery, which was no big deal to the Roman culture. It would not have been something that Jesus would have to go against Rome. Oh, Jesus, the law says kill her, and Rome won't let you. So what are we to do? Heads poke out the windows as the posse pushes her through the streets. Dogs bark and neighbors turn. The city sees, clutching her thin robe, trying to hide her nakedness. But nothing can hide her shame. From this second on, she'll be known as an adulteress. When she goes to the market, the women will point and they will whisper. When she passes, heads will turn. When her name is mentioned, people will remember because moral failure has such easy recall, doesn't it? 
I want you to notice that the religious leaders have made no notice of their own sins, their secret sins. They can only see the undeniable caught in the act, the very act sins of the woman. I suppose it's the greatest temptation in the world, is it not? To focus on the failures of your friends and family and therefore ignore your own. Oh, none of us has trouble seeing sin. We see it in everyone around us. We see adultery and gossip and lying and greed and gluttony and lust and arrogance and pride. We see it all. We have no trouble calling a sin a sin unless it's our own. Elsie Kennedy, a professor at University of Kentucky once upon a time, had a bad habit of smoking two to three packs of cigarettes a day. Her physician was getting her off of them, told her she had to for her health, for her breath, for her oxygen levels. He said, now, during these first 30 days, you're going to be really, really, really irritable to everybody around you when you're coming off those cigarettes, that nicotine withdrawal. And at the end of the process of getting off the cigarettes, she said she didn't find herself irritable at all. She said, I just stayed my old sweet self. My friends got so disagreeable, I couldn't stand them, but I stayed my old sweet self. We're not tempted to deny sin. We're only tempted to not see it in ourselves. How would this place, how would this city be transformed if each of us searched for our own sin and our own soul before we saw the shortcomings of our friends, our family, and our neighbor? Second thing I want you to see, sometimes we have to begin again at the point of shame. Sometimes we have to begin again like this woman at the point of shame. We know the feeling of shame, don't we? Well, we all know what it feels like to be humiliated. Perhaps we haven't been caught in the act of adultery, but we know what it, it feels like to find our hand caught in the cookie jar. We know what it feels like to have to face the music, to face ourselves, to face God. Shamed. To have someone switch on the light when we are quite comfortable in the shadows of darkness. Shame to have the teacher announce that someone's been cheating on the test and walk over to your desk. Shame to know that someone in the office is on the take and find a message in your email box the night before. I want to see you first thing in the morning. Shame to eventually have the whole world know what we ourselves already know in our souls. Shamed. Have our spouse walk out on us and air all the dirty laundry to friends and family, some true, not so much, but shamed. Yes, the woman should be shamed, and each of us at some point in our lives will be shamed too. Last week I had lunch with a businessman in our community. We get together from time to time to discuss our own broken lives as well as the broken world around us. This business person is often asked to vet potential political candidates regarding their candidacy for an electable office. And he said, I asked those potential candidates four different questions. For the life of me, I can't remember the first three because I was so riveted by the fourth. The fourth and last question he asked a potential candidate is, what are you ashamed of? In your life, what are you ashamed 
of. I was rattled by this last question when I left our lunch, and I pondered, how would I myself answer that question? What are you ashamed of? Someone you respect poses that potent question to your face. What are you ashamed of? The reality is a woman caught in adultery, we know hers. And the reality is each one of us knows our own. And it causes us to shudder the word shame. I mused over our meeting that afternoon, and the answer of grace quickly came to mind. My answer would be, I don't know. God has forgotten my shame. Jesus died on the cross so I wouldn't have to bear the shame. He's asked me to forget my shame, and the only one trying to remember my shame is Satan and recall it again to my own mind. I don't remember my shame. My friend's point, and he liked that answer, his point was your political opponent will find out your shame, and like the Pharisees and the scribes, haul the woman out and point and say, sinner, sinner, they're going to do that to you. Do you know your point of shame? Here's one thing about shame. It allows all of us to start at the bottom, doesn't it? Months ago, someone in the midst of tragedies of life looked at me and said, life can only get better. And for him at that moment, it was true. Life could only get better. But God uses broken things, does he not? God uses our brokenness. God uses broken soil to produce a crop. God uses broken clouds to yield forth the rain. God uses broken grain to give forth the bread. And God uses broken bread to give his grace and communion. A broken alabaster box to perfume and anoint the body of the Lord who will be crucified and, yes, resurrected. It is Peter, the apostle, bitterly weeping, who returns with greater power and love for Jesus than ever before. Here's the third thing I want you to see. All attempts to test God will end in our own humiliation. All attempts to test God will end in our own humiliation. You see, they're trying to test God. They're trying to test the rabbi, who's Jesus, who's God. Look at verse 6. And they were saying this, testing him. So they might have grounds of accusing him, but notice, but Jesus. They were trying to test him and accuse him, but look at the end of verse 6. But Jesus stooped down with his finger and wrote on the ground. The minds of the Pharisees, it was over. Checkmate, deal done. We've trapped the Messiah, the would-be rabbi. He's finished. Of course, they saw him as a fake Messiah, if the teacher of the law says that we need to stone her, he will be agreeing with Moses and he'll be merciless. But if he says that we have to let her go free, then he'll be arguing with Moses. So Jesus does a strange thing. He stoops down and he begins sort of doodling in the dirt. Now commentators have questioned for all the ages what it is that Jesus is writing with his finger. His silence is bothering them. They think they have him at a checkmate. They think the match is over. But whenever you try to take on God, you'll not be the victor. You're going to end up the victim. He's doodling in the dirt, and some ancient commentators think he's writing the sins of the Pharisees and scribes who are in the crowd. He knows the date, time, and place of their shame. He begins writing it in the dirt so they can see that he knows, he knows about them too. They become impatient. 
Rabbi, are you going to speak? Are you not, not going to speak? And he, he again begins doodling in the dirt, and he doesn't respond as they want him to respond to that moment. Jesus is formulating his own argument. Yes, when you try to test God, you'll end up in humiliating. The religious leaders were not looking for justice. That was not their concern. Their one goal was to discredit this new rabbi with all the popularity, the one by the name of Jesus. But instead of giving them that immediate answer, he does that puzzling thing, writing in the dirt. Whatever we try to trap God and we do it too, God, if you love me then, God, if you're real then, God, if you, God, if you, then you have to, trying to put God in a corner, the creator in a corner, and you become the victim, not the victor when you do that. Now, I don't know much about wrestling. Where I grew up, it was wrestling, and there are two different arts. You understand that, you know? Wrestling is what they do at Oklahoma State so very well. But wrestling, where I come from, the Carolinas, it's the big belt, the, belt, belkle, the belts and the buckles there and the big mouths and all the talk. And in its finer collegiate form, one is awarded points, not for, you know, if you take a chair and smash your point on it in the head, that will not get you a point in college, all right? You understand the difference. You can't, you can't just take a folding chair and start whacking people in the head. That won't work at Oklahoma State Wrestling. It doesn't work that way. You get points for things like a takedown. You get one point. You get a point for something like an escape. But I found a third move that is worth two points. It's called the reversal. The University of West Virginia wrestling rules define the reversal this way. You score two points when your opponent has you down on the mat and you come from underneath and gain control of your opponent. That's a reversal. You're on the bottom. You reverse it. And now you're on the top. If you try to corner God like they tried to corner Jesus, you're going to find yourself the victim of reversal. God will score the two-point move, and your back will be on the mat. Maybe Jesus is fulfilling Jeremiah 17, 13. Those who turn away from me shall be written on the earth. He's writing their sins. He's writing their names. He knows. So what do you say, verse 7? Stop the doodling in the dirt. Get up and tell us. What do you have to say? And Jesus says one of his most famous things he's ever said. The one among you who has no sin, let him hurl the first stone. The one among you who has no sin, let him hurl the first stone. The story of a man who keeps a stone on his desk in his office, and he has the word first written on it. He sits there, reminds him of the story, and it reminds him of sin and how harmful sin is can really be. He says sometimes someone will come in his office and they will find the, the word, the stone with the word first written on the stone and they'll ask him, what's that about? Maybe they're coming to complain about a colleague. Maybe they're coming in to carp and complain. He says he'll hand them that stone and they'll learn about grace and maybe some things still need to be changed, but the reality is things will be forever different. There's the fourth thing I want you to see. The way we measure it out to others is the way God measures it to us. The way we measure it out to others is the way God measures it to us. In Matthew 7, 1 through 5, we read these words. 
do not judge lest you will be judged. For in the way that you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? And how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when behold, a log is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. I don't like this saying of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. I don't like it at all. I want to be judged by the grace and the mercy of God, but I want to judge you censoriously. I want to hold your feet to the fire. I want to keep you to the law. But the problem is Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, and the way that you judged, you will be judged. And the way that you measure out, it will be measured to you. If we're throwing stones at sinners, Jesus might be saying it'll take a whole quarry to take care of the crowd that gathered there on that day. The whole point of the gospel is this, that you are a sinner who received grace, and therefore you must also give grace. You are a sinner who has received grace, and therefore you must also be willing to give grace. A remarkable thing happened to this story I kind of imagine all the crowd standing there with their stones. Now, these weren't little rocks. These were boulders. They, were going, they throw you down the hill, you trip, and then they throw the, the stones at your skull. And normally it's said that the one who accuses the woman, the, the accuser, to make sure they're not a false witness, they have to throw the first stone. But Jesus says, the one among you who has no sin, cast the first one. You hear a thud. John tells us it starts with the oldest, and then a thud and a rumble and a thud and a rumble, and everyone drops their stones and they walk away. And Jesus asks her, woman, where are they? Does no one condemn you? And she says, no one, Lord. And he says, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Here's the final thing I want to say in this passage. Jesus is not condoning sin. It's amazing how many times people hear this story, they hear this pericope, and their, their idea, they conclude is sin. Jesus says sin is no big deal. That's not what it says. Jesus never says her adultery is okay. He never says that her sin is no big deal, but rather he says, I'll give you grace. But go and sin no more. Here was a pastor his last name was Howard, Dr. Howard, and he preached plainly about sin. And when the ladies came up in the church, he was new there and said, would you please call it a mistake or making bad choices? Don't preach so hard against sin because our kids, our boys and girls will hear it and they might more easily become sinners. Call it a mistake if you will, but do not preach against sin. He went over to his utility closet and he got a bottle of strychnine. It was rat poison. It had the skull and the bones upon it. And he said, oh, I see what you want me to do. You want me to take that label off and put on a new one. He put on a new label, essence of peppermint, he wrote on it. He said, don't you see, dear lady, the milder you make the label, the more dangerous you make the poison. Jesus says, go sin no more. Sinner she was, her reputation had unraveled. Picked apart by self-righteous hands, weavers in reverse. 
Her pride faded like the empty colors. Until all that she knew of herself was what others had said about her. She was evil. She was wrong. Sinner she was. Branded and worthless. Sinner she was. Dirty and useless. But then there came a man with love in his eyes and forgiveness on his lips. Sinner she was, but forgiven she was, and her life came back to her. They didn't understand. These that had never known the weight of shame, so perfect they never, to be, never need to be healed, so perfect they never need to be forgiven, so perfect they never needed anything or anyone beyond themselves. But she knew what it was like to need, and her broken heart cried glad tears. He was her Lord. He was her Christ. The essence of the gospel is this. We receive the grace of God, and all of us have our shame. And as we receive the grace of God, we give the grace of God. Those of us who drink from the goblet of God's grace invite others to come and drink from it as well. Go and sin no more, but in Christ begin again. Let's pray. Oh, God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your forgiveness for us. If there's anyone watching live stream or on television this morning or anyone in this great sanctuary who would need to say in her heart or his heart, just pray it along with me in your own heart. God, I'm a sinner. I, too, am at the point of shame. And, God, I need the grace that comes to the crucifixion and resurrection of the Christ. I invite Jesus into my heart to be my Lord, to be my Savior. Amen.